this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. In an environment that seems to be permanently riddled with mosquitoes, alligators, poisonous snakes, and just about every creepy crawly insect you can find, you might spot the odd man out. It's likely they'll be waist deep in the muck with a shotgun. Rain or shine, they stand like a statue braving the elements. The hunters of the swamps are their own special breed. We may not deal with ice and sub-zero temperatures. We have our own set of struggles. Hunting in the south, much like many things, is deeply rooted in tradition and family. The duck blind is a place where memories are made, the spot where generations of stories are experienced in real life. A place where bonds are formed for a lifetime, the center of solitude for some, the shelter from the harshness of the real world for others. The days we'll never forget start just as often with a sunrise over an ocean of glass as you stand motionless looking for the telltale wake of a redfish in search of a meal in the shallows as they do for the limits of ducks shortly after first light. The Florida sportsman has mud between their toes and salt water in their veins, a deep connection to the swamp, and a deeper loathing for the wine of mosquitoes on a summer night. This week, we are joined by Florida native and avid outdoorsman, Kevin Holt. Kevin, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, first, thank you uh, for having me on your podcast. and um, I'm a Florida native, multi-generational. Um, I come from a background of hardworking folks. My uh, mom's family was from the uh, swamps of Florida hauling timber out back in the day when, the, uh, when they were going up and down the coast of Florida and up into Georgia pulling a big timber out. And on my dad's side, he was a uh, farmer in Alabama, so he served in World War II. So good history there of, of hard working, and that was instilled into me uh, as a native Floridian here. I've been working in orange groves since I was probably about 10 years old and, um, and worked around that. Uh, we had some cattle. We did some farming. And uh, so I've uh, been able to carry on some of those traditions and uh, bring those into my family as well. I... Um, I've never lived anywhere other than Florida, although I have visited all around the world. And uh, I do have a deep appreciation for the western United States as well. But Florida has a lot to offer. It's very diversified, and I can find a way to itch any of my, or scratch any of my itches that I have right here in the state. So the first time I ever met Kevin was at a BHA event. It was a dove hunt down at Three Lakes. Actually, you did a podcast out there and um, I didn't know, but he got out of the truck, came walking up, and he's just got this look about him. And as soon as you look at him, like, that guy exudes Florida. Like, it wouldn't <laughs> surprise me if he said he'd never left the state. <laughs> Can you get oh, I was uh, never, man. You opened it too I'm fast. Fired. Yeah. <laughs> I can't get, I can't get, Diet Coke, man, that pops great. <laughs> So you, I mean, multi-generational, you are the true epitome 
of a Florida cracker. And for those that don't know, the origin of the term Florida cracker refers to the cracking sound made by the whips used by early settlers to herd their cattle. And we have the Florida cracker cattle, or we used to, the, the first cows brought here by the Spanish. And they were herded back and forth across the state and sent to, during the Civil War, um, Florida beef fed the Confederacy. There's a, a rich cattle, cattle history in the state of Florida. Um, so who introduced you to hunting? So my, um, my brother-in-law, um, Ron, I have, so there's seven of us kids and we have, are probably around 30 years apart between my oldest she's my oldest sister's bumping close up there to to high 70s i'm in my 50s so um my brother-in-law who's was uh, a bit older than me he's the one that introduced me to it and um he was also running cattle and farming and um we had cattle over near um the south end of lake county north end of orange county and he introduced me to hunting through the access that he had uh, through his farming and ranching so what are your some of your uh, fondest memories of growing up in old florida um one of the things that we used to have i, I the main hunting that I, that we did was wing shooting so um with all the farming that was around i mean we had flights of dove that were just unbelievable. I mean, they would just really fill the skies. And uh, we had nice quail populations. Um, so we used pointers and um, would hunt quail uh, down outside of Claremont, south end of Lake County once again. Um, we had quite a bit of quail that we hunted with, with dogs. And, uh, and then the duck hunting on the, on the north end of Lake Apopka there. Um, through some of the muck farms was just outstanding. I mean, we had such a great variety. So between there and Merritt Island, um, those were probably the largest variety of birds that we had. Uh, over on uh, Lake Okahumka was ringers, uh, which is now seems to be the main main bird that we get down here during duck hunting is ringers. But um it was pretty cool i mean as a little kid you know you'd be sitting in the blind and looking up and it seemed like you know all of a sudden they take their oxygen mask off and just dive almost straight down out of the sky is what it seemed you know as a as a young man watching that happen and just circling working the working the decoys and uh is is good times i love getting into a mess of ringers yeah it's a lot of fun because they and you don't even I'm I'm still convinced you could take a a group of like black bottle like bottles paint them black throw them out in the water and leave the white caps on them ringnecks will be on top of them <laughs> yeah. they just want to be with something besides being by themselves when they get on the water right, don't matter right. what decoys you got out there doesn't matter the ringers are coming yeah, yeah. and old Lake Oklahoma that's uh, still a lot of ringers oh yeah <laughs> yeah it's a lot more it's a lot more popular right now though. Uh, Used to, we could have permanent blinds out there. Yeah. So uh, we, we'd set up our blinds every year, and then uh, you could just put it in the morning and go into your blind. Better be looking for moccasins and stuff. But, 
but yeah, you could just go into your blind. And then um, down on the north end of Lake Apopka on the muck farms, we once again, we had permanent blinds. So we could set our decoy spreads out and just leave them there. And then when it, when it was a day to hunt, we could just go out there and, and start enjoying it. The variety of ducks is still very much there in the north end of Lake Apopka. In fact, like I was talking to you earlier today on the phone, I said that when I when I need reassurance that the ducks are actually in Florida and I just don't know what I'm doing, I go drive through that North Shore Nature Drive, and they're everywhere. Yes, sir. Everywhere over there. Yeah, for Makes sure. you just want to just get just the right permission. Right, right. I mean, I yeah, and I like I mentioned to you before, I you know like a, if working into a multi-use because that you know that that property is accessible you know to the public for certain reasons um you know whether it be you know a hike or bird watching or now they have like you said the drive through there uh i'd be interested in in seeing if you couldn't do some type of quota hunting or something like that for for access into the the ducks the only way i see that ever working out in that way is where it's run a lot like uh, Merritt island mm-hmm. where it's not uh you have to draw a permit to be there. There's only so many days out of the regular season you can hunt only on those permitted days. Um, it wouldn't be anything like going to the Lake County Zoo up here and uh, <laughs> where you can hunt Wednesdays, you know, Saturdays and Sundays um, because they do open that for people to drive. And I think it's only open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday to drive through there. Any other time it has to be foot traffic. Right. But the drive is open on the Fridays and the weekends. Mm-hmm. Um and you can still get out on Lake Apopka on the North Shore. You have to be so far from the impoundments and stuff, but you're not going to get ducks out there. They don't want to be there. That's right. Exactly. I mean, they're there, and you might get some passing ducks coming from the roost or going back to the roost, but not. you're never going to get decoying birds out there, not yeah. unless they're really stupid, which and, is possible. And you know that a duck, you need to be where the duck wants to be. Right. I mean, that's you know that's that's one of the things that... You know, you can set your decoys up and all that, but if the ducks don't want to be there, then you you might get some pass shooting. But that's that's the key factor. In fact, we have a little wood duck hole we hunt on our uh, deer lease in Georgia that you don't you don't need decoys because they just that is pretty much one of their own, one of the few spots they can actually get down through the timber and land in the water. Right. So we just stand there and wait. There you go. Here they come. But the decoys do help. I have seen, we, we've thrown out four or five decoys with some flock of flickers and stuff, and that does grab their attention when they, they may have been thinking they were going to go over here to this pond or that pond, and they'll come back and land in our, our little spot there. Sure, sure. We have had better success with decoys some days, and then some days without them we do just as good. So you never know. That's just the timing aspect of it. Yeah, sure. But um, so what is your favorite game to pursue? Um. If I could put it to, uh, if I could put it into a uh, category, I would say wing shooting once again. Because I, I mean, the snipe, duck, dove, um, you name it, I, <laughs> I enjoy it. I, I like the, I like the thrill of it. Um, one of the things that I have a preference on that versus say um, most of your fur bearing animals is that you actually get to shoot a lot. Yeah. Most of the time. Now there might be some days where you don't, but but uh, in general, you get you get to actually pull the trigger, which I think for most of us, that's that's kind of the goal. <laughs> at that first hunt that I met Kevin at, oddly enough, 
he teamed up with us when we hunted behind Brian Irish, who also did a podcast, um, talking about shooting a lot. So we walk out there, snipe jumps up, one single shot. Kevin's got one in the bag. Snipe jumps up. Brian lets out a shot. Got one in the bag. Morning progresses. 13 shots later. I got one in the bag. Jim's got one in the bag. <laughs> we do a lot of shooting for snipe. Hey, but he's pulling Not the trigger. a lot of hitting. Yeah. He's pulling the trigger. And, and like, so what, what I explained to him is, so I am a little more, I, I have a tendency to be, I really choose my shot carefully, which is not necessarily a good thing. Because as my son tells me, Dad, if you don't pull the trigger, you're never going to hit him. <laughs> so I told Jim, I said, there's nothing wrong with pulling the trigger, man. You know? I like to reload. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was, I mean, there was a time, where, I mean, the way ammo is now, we're kind of getting back towards that, where <laughs> right. you go out to duck hunt with six shells, and you better come home with six yeah, birds. Right. There, there ain't going to be no ducks for dinner. Yes, sir. But because you got to be a little more conservative now, that stuff's hard to find. Right. I'm already trying to buy steel for next year. Yeah. That way, I've got it when it comes when season comes around. Right. I I got a thousand. I got a thousand regular primers and probably another five hundred of the heavy duty ones. So, and I just figured out my press and load three inch shells. So. Well, there we go. We're we're okay for next season. We're on the money. So what's funny is talking about ammo. So like when I first started. bird hunting including waterfowl it was you know two and three quarter inch lead lead shot is what you know we use for everything you know now they got you know these three and a half inch magnums they got tungsten they got you know all this all this different type of of ammo that we're that we're using so it's it's kind of neat to to have watched the industry progress and uh and for the better i mean obviously there's science behind the reason that we're not using lead on waterfowl and things of that nature and a lot of states are going towards no lead at all for any any types of uh of birds but um but it it is interesting um to watch how it progresses earlier if i could take a step back you made a comment about wing shooting and one of the first species that you mentioned was doves um what do you think happened to the doves you think it's literally just loss of habitat because it just seems like i hear a lot of folks that go back to the 70s or early 80s and just talk about pounding them. And unless you're a guy like the world's, or I'm sorry, not the world, but Florida's greatest small game hunter, uh, Cameron Gordon, a lot of guys are really struggling with doves these days. What do you, you got any insight as to what you think may happen there? Um, for one thing, I think, I think habitat for sure, um, because we don't have near the farming that we used to have. Um, and so when you don't have like millet or sorghum or any of that kind of stuff growing, which, you know, um, cause what's kind of cool about, you know, if you open, if you open an animal up, you kind of see yeah. what their diet is. I mean, and that should give you some insight into where you need to be hunting for these animals. Um, and you used to, I mean, you feel a crawl and you could just, I mean, just packed with seeds and we don't really have that around here anymore. So between, you know, if you had if you had an access or a um, the ability to have a farm nearby and then have a water source, I mean, it was money. It was there was a lot of birds. I know, like a lot of guys will plant millet for doves, mm-hmm. and you have to forgive me because I didn't know this. Did Florida at one time 
was it, was it producing cereal crops like that for a, for a cash crop? Was that widely distributed, or was it? Yeah, we we did have, and and um, we grew it for we grew stuff for cattle too. Yeah, and so it's a, it's a nice twofold thing. It it kind of went hand in hand. So because we would do um, we would grow certain crops to feed cows because what we were doing one one of our one of our ways that we were raising cattle was we would buy skinny cows and get them cheap yeah exactly (laughs) exactly that's exactly right so not everything was cow calf you know so we would buy skinny cows but um you're not going to truck in grain from the midwest and make them make any money you know what i mean so we would buy from due to farms there on the north end of lake apopka we would buy cold carrots a lot of any type of cold vegetables uh cereal grains things like that that they might be growing and we would feed that to our cattle fatten them up and then take them to the market and make money off the you know the increased uh, weight gain that they had did you used to finish them off with molasses sweet feed and things like that or was that just for your own personal stuff so no so molasses gives them gives them a um, some source of energy and things of that nature for um for the cattle it was mainly liquid um you know when you have molasses in and Got we, it. we would have we would have somebody come in and deliver that and you mentioned one of the things uh, to touch on that I think I don't think you've met Cameron Gordon, but you mentioned the crops and pulling the crops. Cameron is such a fanatical dove hunter that he started tearing open the crops and collecting what was the the seeds in the crops. Mm-hmm. And he's got a couple of beer cans full of seeds, and he's uh, in a in a careful way he's planning on sowing those seeds to figure out exactly what they're eating. So that once he knows exactly where they're eating, he'll know exactly he'll know what to look for. So he could post up there, in the different places he loves to hunt, and and just have that much more of a leg up. And I thought that was brilliant. Interesting, interesting. The University of Florida actually has some resources that you can utilize if you do want to plant um, dove fields, and they can and they'll actually give you a series in which to plant it, so that it lasts through all the phases of dove season. Now so, all it needs a couple hundred acres right in the right, middle exactly. of Orlando to plant yeah, my exactly. dove field. Right. Yes, <laughs> we planted a dove field uh, at our lease, and we had in southeast Georgia of uh, brown top millet. Mm-hmm. And we're like, this is going to be great. You know, we had a clear cut. We'd gone down where they had cut logging roads, planted all that, planted these big patches in like the where they did most of their logging operation, the hubs. We had a big field there. And it came up. It was green. It was beautiful. But it never got over four inches tall because the deer absolutely hammered it. But the doves were still there towards the end. And I want to say we got a bad hurricane that year and weren't able to go up there and dove hunt for opening weekend. That was just the only weekend we were really going to be able to dove hunt it because deer season started the next weekend. Sure. But it, uh, it, it, it amazed me. Of all the things we'd put out for the deer and everything else, those deer just hammered that brown top millet and never let it turn into a dove like a true dove field sure but it's it's multi-use i guess and it's cheap brown top right. millet was cheap i want to oh, yeah. say it was 12 dollars for a 50 pound bag yeah so we spread that stuff everywhere everywhere but so being in, in a, a florida native i mean there's only so much hunting you can do you got you got to fish there's water everywhere I feel like, especially in the area we're here, 
we're in here. You can't walk five miles across flat land and not hit a pond. Yes, sir. At least. Yes, sir. So what do you prefer, uh, salt water or fresh water? So I like uh, inshore salt water is probably my favorite. I've done it all from deep sea fishing, inshore, uh, salt water, and fresh water. Um, probably the person that introduced me, well, actually two people I'll credit with introducing me to the, uh, to the fishing side of things. One being Ron, my brother-in-law, the same brother-in-law. And um, so with him, uh, we would we'd go up to St. George's Island once a year and go up there and go fishing, gig and flounder, all that kind of stuff. And this was before St. George's Island was nearly as populated as it was. And we could camp up there. I mean, it was, it was, it was pretty cool. Um, you had pretty much unlimited access to, to drive out there to, to get to things. Um, and then also he had a boat. So he had a, um, it was a well craft, just a 20 foot well craft. But we'd go out of Homosassa and Crystal River and go grouper fishing 40 miles out. And I will tell you that as a young man, I've been out there in that 20-foot boat when you had to throttle up the wave to get over it. <sighs> so there was some pucker factors, um, you know, during those times. And you couldn't see out of the trough, you know. But if you wanted to grouper fish out of Homosassa and Crystal River, you got to go 30, 40 miles out. Now this new thing all of a sudden they come up with, they got this inshore grouper fishing. Well, had I known that, I wouldn't have had to go near as far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Wintertime grouper fishing, man, it's amazing. Right. You're catching them on lures too. Yes. Just ripping them across the ledges and all of a sudden, wham, and the Spanish Max are there. Mm-hmm. But it's chilly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but that's um, that wasn't around that I knew of anyway and, and um, back then. So the only thing we knew was – go 30, 40 miles offshore and start looking for rocks. And, of course, you didn't have all the fancy electronics that you had, so a lot of stuff was, you know, uh, the ran or um, just your compass and to get back in. And, uh, and then when we'd find a rock, we'd take um, like a Clorox bottle, you know, with, with some weight on it and some string. And when we, come a, when we hit a rock, we'd drop one, and then we'd try to find another rock. And then drop another one, and then we troll back and forth between those Clorox bottles, you know, catching catching fish, and it's uh, it's pretty cool. When you're little, you think you hook the bottom. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you think you hook the bottom, and uh, and you got to get them out of there quick. Oh, they really rock you, know? you up real yeah. fast. Yeah, you got to get them out of there quick. But um, and then on the other person that I'd like to credit would be my my grandmother on my mom's side. And um, she would take a speck fishing and all. And that was fun. You know, that was fun. And I've tried to pass that on to, to you know, my children. And, and I'll, tell, I'll tell you, my when I lived in Osceola County and my son was little, I would take him out there in my airboat and um, I'd get him two rods hooked up with crickets. And because I needed two for him because when the bluegill were bedding, I mean, it would just as fast as he would pull one up, I'd put a cricket on and put it back out there. And I mean, he was just, just snapping them up. We had a good time. That's the way my son is. He's, uh, he's just a, a modern day five year old Bill Dance. Mm-hmm. At least he thinks he is. He, uh, we, we get him out there. I like to take him to his, his secret fishing spot down on the Blackwater Creek. 
Okay. Hook him up with some red wigglers and just let him go to town. He's getting to the point now. It's it's nice because now he's starting to bait his own hook and take off his own fish and all that. But he's been he could cast a fishing pole before he could walk. Nice. I had him sitting out in the yard in our, our front yard. He'd sit in my lap and cast his little little tiny rod like you see that little one hanging up there on the on the wall. Yeah. Cast that out there with a rattle trap with no hooks on it out across the yard. Reel it back <laughs> in. Cast it out. Reel it in. Cast it out. Reel it in. He loves to fish. Yeah. Uh, and that's funny because that, re- that reminds me of a, when I first started fishing with a bait caster. Um, you know, what my, my brother-in-law did was he just tied a little nut on the end of the line, you know, uh, and um, he'd put a bucket out in the yard. And that's what I had to do was cast that bucket and uh, learn how not to backlash because it's a lot easier to sit there when you got some time and you're not out there actually fishing to clean those backlashes out in the yard and then when you're out there fishing and you get a big bird's nest and you're you know trying to trying to get that thing out that's 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 how my dad taught me he bought me a a bait caster for my 12th or 13th birthday and i said well how do you cast that he said hit the button hold your finger on the line cast at that bucket stand (laughs) out there in the yard yes but you know what of any fishing reel anymore if i especially if i know i'm going to be pulling really pulling on something out of some thick like bass out of lily pads or logs and stuff i i much prefer a bait caster over a spinning rod yeah yeah Yeah. just that gear to gear ratio really get it going right get them out of the water and you'll notice like so we use a lot of spinning gear as far as uh redfish trout things like that but you'll notice that in louisiana that they use a lot of bait casters for their redfish and stuff. There's a lot of bait casters out there. And earlier you mentioned another part. I, I, I mentioned earlier that every time I talk to you, you get a little bit cooler. But you mentioned that St. George's Island is one of your favorite spots because that area of the country, uh, or that area of the state, St. George's Island, St. Vincent's, uh, Cape San Blas, that's like my second home. Um, when you were going up there, was it was the I don't know what year the ferry was. The ferry still running it, or did they already have the bridge in there when you? They were? had a bridge. Okay, yeah. I, say, I think the ferry stopped running in the early seventies, late late sixties. So yeah, because we're about the same age, I guess. It, right. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, um, that was my main question: if, if, how long had you been going up there? Because it. Yeah, it was in the seventies, but the bridge was in. Um, of course, I was young. I don't remember any kind of tolls or anything like that. I don't. I don't know. There might have been, but. Um, but the bridge was in. I don't remember. I don't remember a ferry. You still paying attention to that area, the with with what's going on with the Apalachicola River and the and the oysters and the Florida water yes. wars. It just yeah. tears my heart out. But yeah. I don't know how we're going to fix it. Yeah, Lake Wimico and the the water levels there, saltwater intrusion. What it's doing to that whole estuary up there is yeah. not good. We're working. We're working on getting to the bottom of that and getting some guests on here to talk about that. Depot okay. Creek that flows into Lake Wimico is the only place that I've ever caught blue catfish, sail, I'm sorry, blue catfish, uh, channel catfish, and gaff top on the, in the same creek, same bait, and same bush hooks. And it's <laughs> not supposed to have, it's just an unusual place. That gaff top's not supposed to be there. Right. But So what is your favorite species to fish for uh redfish yeah yeah and and 
So as long as I've been fishing many, many years, um, I'm just now starting to toy with the saltwater fly fishing thing. Um, I've got a skiff, and actually my birthday here, which was last month, I asked my son for his present to be to me is to pull me around for a full day of, of uh, fly fishing for uh, redfish. So that's... I told him it's not going to cost you anything but a little bit of a little bit of willpower and muscle, and uh, so that that was my gift that I asked for from him. So yeah, that that's it, redfish. I I do I love redfish as well, and I have my saltwater fly rod sitting up there. Um, I am by no means a <laughs> saltwater fly fisherman, but I try. Yes, sir. Uh, I I can tell you now I've hooked myself more times than I've hooked a fish with it. Uh, but you know what? I'm not willing to quit. I'm gonna keep trying. Have you uh have you ever gone out and fished the docks and the intercoastal and stuff like that at night? So I haven't I haven't done it at night. Nope, nope. The our main thing at night was either gigging flounder or shrimping. Going over there out of Oak Hill and you know, shrimping. So what we'd do is we'd go over in the afternoon and fish, you know, and then get set up and, and get ready for the shrimp run and then and then shrimp at night. we fun stuff. We've gone out in some of those more heavily populated areas on the intercoastal where you've got a lot of uh, docks with lights and stuff like that out there at night. Oh, man. it's uh, It can almost be discouraging <laughs> because you can see so many fish, right. so many fish. Uh, I think we, we rolled up to one dock, and it probably had 30-plus short red shorts, short reds in there. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't bite nothing. Not a dang thing. Or interesting. But there was something in there that hid on the edge of that light. Took my brother for about a 30-yard run. Snap. Gone. Just like that. Mm -hmm. Don't know any idea what it was. Never saw a fish in there big enough to run that spool, that pole. Like, And, like, I, you know, speaking of bigger redfish, I think that might be why that's one of my favorite. Because as a, as, as a young man, my first redfish, I can remember it. It was in Steenhatchee. And... Um, I hooked into a red, and that was probably one of the best fights up to that point that I'd ever had on a fish. And um, I, th I think that's kind of what, what set the hook in me, so to speak, on uh, on redfish, and I've just enjoyed them ever since. So I have to agree with you on two fronts. I definitely prefer saltwater fishing over freshwater fishing. And I love saltwater fishing for redfish. I like, the one thing I really like to be able to do is, is get out there in the shallows and spot fish see a fish see where the fish is going throw bait out in front of it and just how aggressive saltwater fish in general are versus freshwater fish right. it's yes. it's a whole bunch of fun yeah whole bunch of fun i'd rather stand there in the front of the boat all day looking for a fish than blind casting going well they might be over there <laughs> you know sure just something about uh it's a little more entertaining to me or if you blind cast and blow them out then you're like oh, i should have just waited a second I yeah i would have seen them yeah, yeah. But, uh, so what was it, what was it like fishing back then? I mean, what, what was the, did you, do you see a noticeable difference in the water quality and the, the quality of the habitat out there? So water quality, I do. Uh, I think that there was definitely less pressure. Um, and I believe that the fish get smarter. You know, I think we train them. Um, I don't think there's any doubt. Yeah. Yeah, I think that we train them. I think they get smarter. But uh, I also tell you that 
like we didn't go to the store and buy bait. I mean, if you wanted to fish with worms, then we went out and dug out in the yard and got worms. You know what I mean? Um, if we wanted, um, I don't know if you know what jumpers are, but grass shrimp, mm-hmm. you know what grass shrimp yep. are, we call them, they call them jumpers, you know, because, but we'd take nets and, and go through the weeds and get grass shrimp and, and go fishing with them or net minnows. Um, grass you know. shrimp are still some of the best dang bluegill fishing. Bait. Oh yeah. No doubt about it. We used to scoop them up all the time as a kid. Just take a dip net, run it down through the That's grass, right. bring it back up. You got four or five, put them in a exactly cup. Exactly right. Yep. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You can't beat so, what they're already down there eating on. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that's, you know, you got that natural bait like that. It's it's um, it's pretty neat. And so now I've pretty much I've kind of progressed to um, using a lot of artificial. And just I think it's more of the challenge. Um, my son's always telling me, Dad, if we'll just put a shrimp on there with a popping cork, we can catch some fish. I said, I know, but anybody can do that. Right. Like, let's, let's try to trick them. Yeah. I completely understand that. <laughs> that's, now, why, that's why I like gulp bait. Yeah. Because you take a pop of court and put one of those uh, gulp shrimp on there. That's, right. that's um, it's every bit as good as live shrimp, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, and especially if you're someplace where there's a lot of pinfish, because the pinfish come up and snap them shrimp yes, faster sir. than you can shake yes, your, you know. And the gulps, they'll, they'll still, you can tell when there's a pinfish banging on them. But at least now, if it, I can hook that pinfish, oh, then, then he, he goes becomes back on bait. There. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he becomes yeah. bait. But I tell, I tell, like I tell my boy, I said, you know, if if I'm trying, if I was having to fish to live, then I'm all with you. Yeah, yes, sir. We're gonna do whatever we need to do to get some food in the boat. But I'm like, you know, when I'm doing it for entertainment and uh, just for the fun of it, and then you know, I try to challenge myself a little bit. We used to go out and put kayaks in uh, around Daytona Beach on the intercoastal. And you would catch the catch tide going one way, follow just float the tide, float with the tide, fishing the whole way down, hit slack tide, pull up on a sandbar, maybe hit a few docks, wait for tide to turn around and come in the other direction, float it right back to where you put the kayak in. That's at. a great idea. Hardly have to paddle the entire sure. day, and great we could just idea. tear up fish. Now, when we did that, we would go and buy a hundred hundred live shrimp a piece. Mm-hmm. So everybody's got you know you, we still had artificial bait because these are not by any means quality shrimp that a young man can afford to buy a hundred of for bait. Sure. Right. They're tiny little things and half of them are dead, but you know what? We didn't care. We got a hundred of them. We're going to, and we would go through the entire hundred in a day. That's right. Just wearing out short trout, redfish, sheephead, daggum puffer fish. I hate puffer fish. <laughs> That's something that'll tear your gulp right in half now. Yeah. yeah you feel them hit. Oh God. And then you pull it up and there's only, they, they bit it right behind the hook and oh, it's yeah. cut clean in half. Yeah. Smart. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. But um, you know, cast netting too, I think is a is a good skill to uh, if you like to live bait fish. Um, I taught my son how to cast net, and we'd go over to Annemarie Island, and he'd cast net greenbacks and all right off the beach, and he caught the biggest snook I've ever seen in my life, uh, and uh, right there off the beach in Annemarie Island, and I that was back before. We carried our cell phones with us everywhere we went, and so I really I don't have any documentation, but it it would have been pretty cool because he was little and the fish was as big as he was, and um, he he was wanting me to help him. Really, Dad, I just I can't get him. I, can't. I said, just stay with it, man. You got it. You got it. You know, I didn't want to I didn't want to you know take take the fun away from it. Right. Um, and uh, so he fought it all the way in, and uh, it was pretty cool. Yeah, I haven't really had my son out saltwater fishing too much but he needs to go he's been a couple times mm-hmm. and i think uh 
he caught a, a a whiting last time he was out there all by himself. Baited his own hook, casted it out, reel it in, cast it out, reel it in, cast it out. He said, I think I got a fish. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Reels it in, sure enough. Had about an eight inch whiting on there. Nice. I was like, Well, daggum, you do have a fish. Yeah. yeah. But uh so what what was it like we'll bring this back around to the, the hunting side of things. What was it like when you hunted the the North Shore Lake Apopka? What did that landscape look like versus what it looks like now? I mean, now it's all uh, flooded and diked, and it doesn't look like the farmland it did many years ago. If it's not flooded or diked, it's pine trees out that way. Right. So all that there, um, it was it was row crop farm, and believe it or not, we had geese back then that that came down as well, and um, but. What we would do is after they would say they would grow a crop of corn, once they harvest the corn, they would have these things back then called mule trains, and they may still be around, I don't know, but there was a, um, a piece of equipment that would run through there. It had double decks, and there was people in there building the crates for the, uh, for the corn. You had guys on the ground, on the muck. I mean, and it, the temperatures are unbearable for the average person. And these guys are down there harvesting corn by hand and throwing it up onto the mule train. And then you got folks in the mule train, you know, sitting there packing the corn into the crates, sliding it down a line. And this piece of equipment is dragging behind it a flatbed truck. And then you got people, you know, the flatbed truck's just in neutral. And they got folks loading it onto that flatbed truck. When that truck gets full, they disconnect the flatbed truck. He goes off back up. Um to where they're going to stack the crates and another one backs up behind it. But uh, bring that back around, The um, when they would get done with that, obviously they don't get every ear of corn or they drop some or whatever. And um, they would come in there with these big Steiger tractors and these huge discs and just disc everything down. Well, once they dissed it down, they would flood it. Well, here come the ducks, you know, because they, they've learned in their flyway here that this is a good spot to stop and and get some groceries so uh yeah they'd come in there and and uh eat that corn so um we have a we'd have a nice nice duck harvest off that sounds like it was quite the time quite it, the time to be a duck hunter in florida it was incredible it was what he just described is what we saw in arkansas on stuttgart though i don't think they flood that well they have a lot of rice fields they do flood but I just think it's so flat and low and clay that it just seems like every field up there is flooded, but it explains why there's so many ducks. And we'd walk out in some of those cornfields, and you'd find uh, um, cob after cob after cob, and there wasn't one single kernel left. And that was uh, end of February, though. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, amazing. Yeah. So that those farming practices of days ago there on the lake, really as we come to find out today were the detriment of what used to be arguably the best bass fishing lake in the world um yep. and it's 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 getting better uh i i've seen some water coming out of lake apopka through the ab canals i've seen days where it's crystal clear and even uh where it pushes out into uh lake carlton Mm-hmm. Or Lake Beauclair. Can't Beauclair is Beauclair. Beauclair. Yeah, yep. uh, Lake Beauclair, where it, it makes that all nice and clear for quite some ways. 
Um, and then you go back to days after a storm when the muck's been stirred up, the muck that's still there, it goes right back to murky water. Mm-hmm. But uh, w- what did the lake look like back then when you were? Yeah, they. I mean, they were they were clean. Um, what's funny is, so Lake Griffin um, was where I lived on Lake Griffin growing up. And, um, you know, we'd water ski it. And um, people nowadays are just like, my gosh, you know how many alligators are out there? I was like, oh. Yeah, I know how many alligators were out there. They were out there back then, too. I mean, it wasn't, you know. But um, we sometimes we would get out of some of those canals because, I mean, we'd take John boats and run all around in these canals and go swimming and, and whatnot. And uh, you get out of the canals and you look, and on the hairs of, of your uh, arm and legs, you, you'd see these little pieces of muck, you know. And... Um, so even back then, um, there, there's, there's, we naturally have muck in, in the state of Florida. Right. I mean, so the, the problem with some of the chemicals that were being used is that, um, you know, the, the nutrients have caused vegetation to grow at an, um, at a, um, a rate that, which it doesn't usually grow. And that's kind of, that's what choked the lakes out. And so, um, obviously, like you said, now that we know that, um, that's not a practice that's um, used anymore or shouldn't be being used. Um, and we need to find other ways to, to get rid of that byproduct. And we're doing everything we can, and that's part of what the, the North Shore Lake Apopka, the restoration area, is all about. That's correct. Yeah. It's uh, where you used to hunt at on due to farms is all restoration area now, and they're trying to... Yes fix what they did yeah let it naturally filter back right. out right mm-hmm. and they're doing a pretty good job like i said i've seen some days in there where it is just crystal clear mm-hmm. and then other days where it's not so much but you know those days of uh i, I remember when i was a kid fishing in the apopka beauclair canals never would have never seen the bottom as a kid yeah uh, it wasn't until i was an adult that I actually started seeing clean water flow through there i had a conversation with dr paul gray from audubon a couple months ago so apparently the, the cleanup is working because when we were chatting, it started about Lake Okeechobee, but there are some parallelisms with regards to the muck and the phosphorus and whatnot. And he indicated that Lake Apopka has got better water quality right now than Okeechobee, which is scary because Lake Apopka is much cleaner than it was since I was a kid in the 1980s. It's a lot better just by looking at it. But Lake Okeechobee is a much larger body of water. You know, it seems to be working in, in Lake Apopka just over the last 30 years. So what are we talking about, Lake Okeechobee, 300, if we started today? They've got to scale the operation up, you know, and that's scale to size and hope hope for the best. Or yeah, there's springs on Lake Op- Apopka. Yeah, and it's still one. crystal clear yes, over there. Yes, if you go yeah. over there, you can, you you find if you know where the springs at, and you go over there, it's you're you're exactly right. The water is awesome. So, you do have um, some natural occurring um, things going on that are, that should be helpful to improving the water quality. Yeah, and I I've spent some time out on Lake Apopka, not a whole lot, uh, just because it always had the reputation growing up of, yeah, it used to be a good place to bass fish, but now you might pull one out with four eyes, you know, because of the crap in there. Don't ever eat those fish is what we're always told. And I still wouldn't today. 
because there's just still some gunk in there. But we're getting back to a much, much healthier lake than what used to be there. In fact, they're actually stocking bass and stuff out in Lake Apopka now, mm-hmm. trying to bring the fish population back up. I still fall back on if somehow I manage to catch, clean, and cook enough wild-caught fish that when I'm laying on my deathbed, the doctor's like, it was the fish you ate. If that happens, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give them fist bumps on the way out. Like, <laughs> success. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. Oh. So what what kind of game? Is this all birds that you're pursuing out there on the North Shore? Yes. Yep. Yep. So um, that's what we were after was, um, like I said, the, we had some coveys of quail that we would hunt. We had plenty of dove and duck. That was that was my that was my uh, my game out there. Quail is one of those things that anywhere in the southeast now is hard to find, and yeah. it's crazy to think about them being so close to here now. You know, another thing that I was talking about that I used to go. My grandfather used to take me out to see when I was a kid in the old uh, cow pastures was the the ground the burrowing owls. They used to be all over. Uh, there used to be a cow pressure right down the road from where we're at right now. And that's where we'd go watch them pop. He'd stop. He'd shut the truck off. He's like, all right, be quiet. And then they'd all pop up out of the ground looking around. And then you'd make a noise right back in their hole. They went. <laughs> but you don't see that stuff anymore. Those, those are few and far between, too. It's just a loss of habitat. Right. Same with the quail. Right. And a lot of a lot of the quail thing is not, so not only loss of habitat, but it's our, our farming practices across the southeast. Yeah, it's all yes. fence to fence now. They don't leave yeah. any brushy areas. Exactly right. Yes. So when, and I don't know, uh, I don't really want to go deep into this, but when the government starts subsidizing farming for certain practices and taking away from like CRP type subsidies and they start paying them for crops, then you're gonna, you're right. The crops are going to be fence to fence because he wants the, the most product that he can farm, you know, because that's what he's being supplemented for. And when you, but when you can increase the incentive for like CRP type properties, then that's where we're going to see an increase in, um, you know, places for, for our wildlife to be and habitat's going to improve. Speaking of quail, I think that I don't know if, I don't know why, but I don't, the state of Florida. They don't really seem to focus a lot on trying to reestablish quail habitat. And I am by no means a scientist, so I don't know that it's just the fact that we don't have the ability. Or is it that we don't burn as much as we used to because of all the people that are living around here and they're complaining of the smoke? Um, Ranches used to burn all the time. I mean, when I lived in Osceola County down off of Highway 60, I mean, you would have, you know, they would be doing, you know, chops and burns down there and um, all the time. And I, I don't, I just don't see that going on anymore. And that's one of the things that brings back some of the helpful vegetation and allows those quail to, to be able to move around. And uh, one of the things that I've always been told is if you want to know if, if the ground's good for quail, he said, lay your head on the ground and see, could you crawl around if you were a quail? You know, if it's so thick that you can't, then chances are there's not going to be any birds there either. I've never really thought about it that way, but that's that's a pretty good point, you know, because we have a very different vantage point when we're looking at that stuff. They seem to make a pretty good living out in, uh, 
triple N, Bull Creek, well, more triple N and three lakes in the heavy palmetto too, but it would almost be the opposite. I think that they're running around underneath all the palmetto. Right. Right. It's either first year burn. Well, the only you'll find them in the first year burn. That's the only place we can get dogs in. Right. But they do seem, you'll hear them, you're letting out that coil whistle from the nasty thick stuff too. So they're in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just you're not getting them out. So. Right. You know, when I was talking about the farming practices, it's not even so much that, you, like you talked about, they used to hand pick the corn. They don't do that anymore. No. And they don't do that because there was more waste, right? Mm-hmm. You want it, the, more, the more corn you can harvest, the more money you can make. Yes, sir. Uh, so they don't hand pick corn anymore. There's not as much left on the ground. And then you have the modern day bush hog where you used to be, you know, back in the day, you could only get so close to the fence and you don't want to tear up your fence. Right. But now with the advancements just in mowing technology, mm-hmm. you're able to get that, that down closer to the fence and get all that stuff cut. So you lose a lot of that brush around the edge of the field. And there's some initiatives put on by quail forever to, to get to, leave more standing crop and, and stuff like that. Cause now they go and they mow it over where they used to just leave old corn stalk stand and things of that nature, or they would disc it down, which would still make habitat for them in some places. Um, but now they go through and they, they bush, bush hog it. It's all cleared out. Right. Just little stubs of stalk standing out there in the field. So I don't know. We're not too far gone. I don't think from quail that we couldn't, we couldn't bring them back, but that goes back to the whole predator management and all kinds of other oh, stuff certainly. too. Yeah. So, it's uh they're still here they are yeah. and i don't i don't oh, yeah. blame a farmer you know if you're mm-hmm. making your living out of the ground you get family to feed and we're all trying to to forward ourselves i don't blame them for trying to figure out what's the most efficient thing that i can do with the property i have to to get that yield and you know the last thing we should also be doing is blaspheme with farmers because we always know that you make it tough enough on them and you know what the last crop's going to be rooftops exactly yeah. so yeah. Um, and I, from the handful of guys that I know, um, I, I mean, I've never put that question to them, but I'm pretty sure that every one of them, if they thought or knew that they would end up with quail on their property, if they left a little more bushy stuff, maybe the first guys leave bushy stuff. It's oh, just, sure. It could be education. Yeah. I have, yeah. I have Awareness. nothing against yeah. farming. And I think that oh, I didn't think farmers know that they, they, yeah. they have some of the deepest ties to land and family and and uh the environment around them i don't think that there was ever at any point in time even the farming practices we found were bad i don't think that any of those farmers did any of that with ill intent yeah uh, i um so i went through the um the advanced ranch ranch management program at uh, texas a&m in keensville texas and um that is one of the one of the things that that they're really pushing through is you know taking a look at the totality of the ranch and how to you know best take care of everything that's there not just the cattle or you know whatever you might be raising but the wildlife um clean water and um the natural vegetation you know things of that nature so that I think that that um, that is pretty prevalent throughout the agricultural industry nowadays. Um, it's just that, like like you talked about, that if they had they known what the end result was going to be in the practices that they were doing, they might have taken a different route. Right. Well, you know, if you chat with some of the older fellows, especially 
you hear stories. If a guy had 300 acres, he was going to plant 300 acres, even if a lot of that 300 acres was on a fairly steep hill. Um, because again, you're, you're trying to compete, trying to feed their family. But after a while, all of a sudden, a lot of their a lot of their soil wound up washing down the the creek, you know, because they'd plant up that hill and then the water would come running down the hill and wash it all away. So where I was kind of going with that is uh, I had that explained to me by other farmers that the reason they don't do that anymore is because you, you, you may feel that you're giving up some land in the short run. You can't plant as much, but if all of your soil runs away, you can't plant at all. Right. So when you, when you talk to those guys today about some of the practices that they used to use a hundred years ago, it wasn't that those farmers were trying to uh, you know, destroy their land. It was a question at that time. They just, they just didn't think that way, you know? So, uh, I, I, I don't know. Like I said, I don't make my living on the ground. My grandfather used to, but, um, uh, I still, because of that, I still feel somewhat tied to it. And I love chatting with anybody that's still fighting the good fight and is able to successfully maintain the small businesses that are farming today. It's just, oh, sure. uh, I'm, I'm envious. I wish my grandfather hadn't gotten into the diner business and still had it, but yeah, times change. So tell us some of your uh, favorite hunting and, and or fishing stories. Oh, let's see here. So um, so I, I could tell you one that was, uh, it's a little bit humorous. It wasn't humorous necessarily at the time. but um, <laughs> Those are the best ones. Yeah. So as a, as a young man, I would just wear a pair of blue jeans and some lace-up boots. I was fortunate enough that I got a pair of main boots from L.L. Bean uh, when I was little. They made those small enough for me. And so that's what I would wear. I'd wear those L.L. Bean-type boots and a um, pair of jeans, and and then I'd, I'd wait out there. And, of course, the flooded fields to the average man were, you know, maybe knee-thigh high. But to the young man, they're more like up over the waist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... It was it was chilly and and we had a good duck hunt coming up and um, my brother-in-law was like you know we need to try to find you a pair of waders he said you're gonna freeze out there I was like all right so Oshman Sporting Goods which used to be over here in the Altamont Mall was um, probably gonna be our best bet at trying to get a um, a pair of waders for me. So we go in there, and the smallest they had was like a seven and a half or an eight, you know, in the in the boot size, which was way bigger than what I wore. But he's like, you know, this is this is the best we're going to do. I was like, all right, all right, we'll do it. So we get out there that morning, you know, it's like three thirty, four o'clock in the morning, and um, we're walking out to the blind. And we, anybody that's walked in muck knows that when you stick your foot down in there, sometimes it you know sucks it up. And so I'm walking in these waders, and I stick my foot down in. Well, the boot stays. My foot comes up as if I had taken a step because of all the room that's in the boot. I think that my foot's out of the mud. And I go to step forward, and I face plant. <laughs> Shotgun in the muck, underwater. My waders, I've fallen down. Yes, sir. I've fallen down, so my waders have water flowing down in them. So by the time I get up and everything, and, you know, my brother-in-law's not turning around. I mean, we're already on our way out there. So um, 
my thought was, boy, I'm glad I'm not going to be cold this morning. You know, as my hunting ducks from a swimming pool, (laughs) as my waders are full of this cold, mucky water. And um, so that's a memory that definitely sticks with me. Um, (laughs) Even today, when I when I'm walking in muck, I'm thinking about that. Yeah, (laughs) I'm making sure that when I take my step, that that foot and that boot is out of the mud. I've lost a shoe or two to some sticky stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Man, when I'm out and. So just a little wet spot out in a WMA or something and you're walking across the bottom and you step into one of those holes where it just feels like you're not going to stop I still can't shake the feeling that something with big teeth made that hole <laughs> yeah. you know and I'm like oh here it comes this is this is the big one so far so good still got 10 toes but yeah. it's always there so what do you find yourself pursuing in the great outdoors today so um, I still bird hunt. Um, sometimes I'm fortunate enough to have a friend that has some access to to a dove field. This year I was I was able to to go duck hunt or dove hunting. I'm sorry on opening day. Um, my quail days are limited. I try I do try to still quail hunt on public land, um, but I don't currently have a dog myself. Um, my son has a black lab. is an awesome retriever. Um, but not necessarily a quail dog for us. You know, he, um, he doesn't have that experience. And then of course, duck. Um, I still, I still go after duck. I, um, I think that it's great that we have a lot of folks interested in the outdoors. And obviously that is, you know, a good benefit to us all around because if people are interested in the outdoors then they're more apt to take interest when legislative things come up and um and make sure that they you know speak to their um to their representatives and and have them vote in favorable ways to help us there in the outdoors and um the thing that i will say though about more folks coming into the outdoors is as we introduce them to the outdoors, if they were not taught etiquette, that maybe instead of getting angry with them, maybe we just politely talk to them about, hey, you know, I saw this go on or that go on, and I just want to let you know that, you know, this may be something you might want to consider. We had some... um some duck hunters that were killed up, I want to say it was Wisconsin or Minnesota. I don't exactly remember the state, but an older gentleman killed a couple of That was on, on uh, Real Foot Lake in Tennessee this year. Tennessee, okay. Yeah. All right, there you go. Yes, sir. Exactly. And so I can't help but wonder, was there something that this older gentleman thought that these kids were doing that was either unethical or, or maybe didn't have the right etiquette? And so... You know, they get upset with each other and, and things escalate. And if you're out there hunting, there's always a gun in the fight. Oh, you absolutely. Know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So you need, to, you need to have some cool heads. But what I'm getting at is in, in the duck hunting arena, um, the way I was taught is if somebody's working some birds, and as these birds are, are, are you know, circling around and people are trying to work them into their decoys, don't just pass shoot, you know, at, at these birds. 
and and let them you know i mean to me that's part of the art that's part of the beauty is if you can get these birds you know to come in and decoy for you and and as a young man growing up man that that's we didn't pass shoot anything we worked them and they either came into our decoys or they flew away we didn't do we didn't sky bust we didn't do any of that stuff and um so i would like to see those of us that do have that background you know and instead of getting angry about it why don't we just maybe these people don't know any different you know why don't we try to share some of our experiences and um some of our education that we may have with them and um and maybe they'll maybe they'll take an appreciation for it but in saying that it's nothing new um Aldo Leopold in the 1940s spoke about duck hunting and he spoke about the fact that even back then he's talking about that when you're working a a set of birds you know and the when they come by you know somebody else is blind you know that that they're taking you know shots at them and for a better word, they're, they're sky busting. He didn't use that language, of course. So his thought was, you know what? When they come by, I better shoot at them because if I don't, somebody else is gonna. And that was that was it, you know, back then. So it's 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 nothing new. I just think it's a matter of um, of educating. Yeah, I think a lot of times as, as outdoorsmen and women, uh, these bouts of frustration we have could could really be turned into a teachable moment that could change the way somebody else hunts Mm -hmm. i try to uh i think one of the things that frustrates me a lot is is when you have put in the work to find a spot you show you get up early and you get out there well before the sun comes up and then right at sunrise here comes somebody else in a boat and they want to set up 50 yards from you i've tried to get to the point now where i'm like hey man this is a great spot to hunt. We're both here together. Why don't you come a little closer so that we're shooting at the same ducks at the same time? Let's let's tie the boats together. Let's anchor off <laughs> nose to nose and make one big blind. Novel idea. Right? That way we're all that way I know he's not past shooting my ducks. I'm not past shooting his. We're all shooting at the same ducks. We'll make a bigger decoy spread. We'll we'll game this and we'll get it done together. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of yelling back and forth at each other, people shooting other people's decoys, just dumb stuff like that that get into uh, at least could end up in a in a argument, uh, but at worst could end up in, in somebody getting hurt. Yes, sir. So, I think that comes from a a philosophy of scarcity. I don't know if philosophy is the right word, but you, there are people I believe that do tend to look at the world like everything is scarce, and sometimes for good reason because they grew up perhaps where they didn't have anything. But <coughs> excuse me. And there's also this philosophy of abundance, like there is going to be a tomorrow. And if we start to share that whole idea that um, instead of this is mine and this is yours, especially when you're talking about wild game where it really does belong to everybody, why not bring them together? Because you, you might find out, I mean, if you were smart enough to find that out and that guy was smart enough to find things out, you're probably talking to an experienced fella. So you start putting a couple smart people together, exchanging ideas. There's a there's a synergistic effect, right? Instead of one plus one equaling two, you get one plus one equals five. You know, um, I try to remember that that we talk about giving away spots or giving away techniques, and 
sharing some of the things that you've learned to shorten another guy's learning curve, to think that that's going to then take away from you is essentially embracing that philosophy of scarcity, like there's not going to be more, that it's a finite thing. But when you take a look at most of the species we have, the different wildlife management authorities are doing such a great job. It's just the opposite. You know, we, we have a lot more than there used to be. And then people will say, but there's so many more people. Ah, that's true too, but there's still more birds. There's still more deer. There's still more, right. a lot of things. So why not share whether you believe in karma and think it's going to come back to you. Sometimes it's just more of a, Hey, that guy did me a solid. I'm going to pass that down. Or maybe that guy did me a solid. I feel like I want to, I want to be right by him too. I think if we all as sportsmen embraced a little bit more of that, and I struggle with it just like every other human being, uh, you're just going to have more fun. You're going to, like you mentioned that scenario, 50 yards down the way the whole morning, you're just yelling at each other and whether the birds came in or whether they didn't, especially if they didn't. We've all been out where things just don't work out. But if the other guy's 50 yards down, you're all hacked off, and of course it's his fault, and you come home and you're just mad as opposed to the, if the guy hadn't come there and there hadn't been any birds, you might be a little disappointed, but you wouldn't be mad. You wouldn't feel like you had your whole day ruined, so... Kudos to you, man. Reach out and yeah. extend that olive branch and see what comes of it. Yeah. I mean, you never know. Just because they know about your spot doesn't mean you know about all theirs. And if you make, you might make a new best friend right there, and then they know where all the ducks are at, not just where the ducks you found are at. Like you're saying, the the two plus two or one plus one equals five. You know, it's that's pretty good stuff. So, has your passion for hunting and fishing changed over the years? Um. I would say that the passions maintained my ability to go as much as I want has, um, has wavered some with other life's responsibilities. Um, but I would say that my passion has always, always been there. Um, I, my kids are grown now. Uh, we're working on grandkids. Uh, you know, we've got, got those coming back into our life. But, uh, so my free time so to speak has increased a little so i'm able, able to start hunting and fishing a little more than than i had um when you're coaching soccer and going to you know dance and cheer events all over all over the state and the southeast and you know things like that that come with kids but you know what i'm willing to obviously sacrifice things for myself uh for the benefit of the, of those children and so uh i i don't look at it as any bad thing having to step away from you know hunting and fishing for a little bit to do other other pursuits as a as a father i never thought twice about it um i never felt like i was missing anything i just got involved in other stuff and for me it wasn't coaching soccer it was a lot of scouting you know boy scouts and i had two boys which made it easier because they did a lot of things together but then bringing, being able to bring a lot of that wildlife passion, because scouting is still a lot of outdoors, it made it easy. But yeah. um, I never felt like I sacrificed anything. Again, going back to the abundance, I just figured that someday I'd have the ability to get out there and do it. Right. And sure enough, now I do it a lot. And I'm, <laughs> right. I'm thrilled to do it. But I feel blessed to have the opportunity to do it, too. So Definitely. Definitely. See, my, my kids are at such a young and impressionable age. I'm trying to get them uh, to the point where they want to hunt and fish just as much as I do so that 
I'm just taking them with me. Right. I think uh, I'm trying to think of a hunt that I went on last year. I think I hunted once for deer last year where I didn't take my son. Mm-hmm. He's been with me duck hunting. I would say three out of five times we went duck hunting. He went with me almost every single time we went to go deer hunt. He just loves being in the camp and being one of the guys. Sure, sure. Take him out in the duck boat, give him a pillow and a sleeping bag, go back to sleep. And don't get me wrong. I took my, my kids with me and everything. It's just it seems as though because their interests um, evolve outside of just hunting and fishing yeah. um, because of the friendships they develop in school and things of that nature, that it does take you in different avenues. And there's only 24 hours in a day and only seven days in a week. So you know, sometimes you got to make choices. And, um, if, if, you know, I, I got to miss taking them on a few things to do other things that make them happy, then I'm, I'm fine with that too. And I think that the more rounded, um, you know, folks are the, the better they're going to be as anything, whether it be a sportsman or, or anything else. So, um, you know, getting them involved in, in other things is not necessarily taking away from, you know, them being avid hunting, hunting and fishermen. Totally no, absolutely agree. not. Yeah. Totally agree. I mean, you look at like the founding fathers and everyone knows Thomas Jefferson, right? But when you really look at what those guys could do, and they were certainly scholars and philosophers and, but the things they invented and they were craftsmen and, uh, they were just these multifaceted people. Mm-hmm. And I think, these days we also be very much in a speci- specializing in things. And I, there's the phrase that you're a jack of all trades and a master of none. And sometimes that's said pejoratively. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being a jack of all trades and a master of one. But if you don't have that diverse background, you're boring. That's right. Yes. Well, we like to end these episodes every week with the Under Pressure Outdoors Tip of the Week. Uh, and I listened to one of your stories. I got one of mine. I, I got one. This is something that came to me as an epiphany during the summer between before this, this last year's duck season um, from having the same experience of filling my waders up after stepping into a good monkey hole. So I thought to myself, I said, you know what? I bet trekking poles would be a great addition to my duck hunting repertoire walking around in waders. And I take my shotgun, throw it over my shoulder, grab my two trekking poles, and I did not eat water once this year. Because it gives you uh, just those extra two points of contact when you're moving around. Because a lot of times you can't see the bottom. And it's that log you can't see or the hole that wasn't there five minutes ago. And you misstepped off your little path by six inches and now you're six feet deep. But adding those two to there has allowed me to lean on those when either pull my feet out of the mud or whatever makes a huge difference. And I bought them on Amazon for 30 bucks. Nice. So I can't beat it. So my, my tip of the week is, is going to be to encourage people since we're coming into fishing season, especially if you've got youth to go to the catch a Florida memory. So it's catch a Florida memory. Um, on the internet and it's sponsored by FWC and it, there's all kinds of different programs. There's slams. Uh, but there, one of the neatest things there is you, you record the different species of fish that you caught 
There's about 70 different species that they keep track of. And as the, as the anglers catch more different species and take a picture of it and enter it into the Catch of Florida Memory Program, they get prizes. So kids especially like to work towards goals. They like to be rewarded. Uh, there's a kid slam in there that, forgive me, I think it's a, a catfish, a pinfish, and maybe a whiting. But that's uh, only open to kids. But then for adults, it's great, too, because they've got inshore slam, offshore slam, species slam. There's a whole bunch of them. But check out catchaflorida.memory.com and take a kid fishing. That's my tip of the week. So my tip of the week, and not to be cliche, but is get outside. Um, if you don't get out there, you're never going to know what you're missing. And um, you need to get out there and experience what and I don't, I don't care if you live in Florida or Maine or California, but wherever you might live, you need to get outside. Um, there's a lot to be learned just from your backyard. Um, you know, and, and so folks that may be listening to this, if they live in the city, um, there's nature everywhere. And so you need to get outside and, and really figure out what a blessing it is to have all these things and and that we need to to take care of and nurture and and do the best we can to be a part of that and uh so that that'd be my tip well i would love to at this point be like hey i got some new reviews to read but we don't you guys are letting me down so we'll just push it on to the next podcast and hopefully we get better than better next time around but uh, we did end up giving away from last week one crawfish boil ticket to to a, a, a review to that. So, and speaking of the crawfish boil, it's coming up, selling tickets like wildfire. There's a and, lot of people got tickets. Yeah. So forget the free ones. And Happy to sell them. Well, the the event area is just absolutely gorgeous down on the Wekaiva River with the little white sand beach. If you want to swim, you got plenty of room to swim. There's plenty of shade, green grass, a volleyball court, pavilions, picnic tables. It's all there. You name it. Come eat some crawfish. Bring yourself something to drink. Bring a lawn chair. You want a place to sit down. We're going to provide the food. You provide something to drink. I'm sure I'll have some waters and stuff there. Uh, but if you want to go any further than that, that, that'll be it. And then you've got in addition to that, the third annual Swanee River canoe trip coming Swanee up. Swanee River Fishing Expedition. Fishing Expedition, I apologize. That's all right. And one of our uh, one of our stalwart cast members from last year just informed us he's not going to make it. So we're, uh, we're really going to miss you, Chase. So we're going to have to have somebody else become the catfish specialist. But uh, that trip, there's a three-day version that's going to depart on May 21st through Sunday, May 24th. So it's a Friday through Sunday trip. And then uh, there's a five-day version for those that want to get out there on the 19th. Uh, but you can find that by going to backcountryhunters.org and just clicking on the events tab, looking at the state of Florida, and then you'll find that the, the sign and the, the signage for the third annual Swanee River Fishing Expedition. It's a lot of fun. It should only cost 20 or 40 bucks, depending on the length of days you go. But that's just to have the, somebody, an outfitter, drop us off, make sure that our cars are safe, but uh, it's a great day. Other than that, it's all you got to do is bring a boat, and we'll get out there. We'll have a bunch of fun in the sun, hopefully sun, and you know, the fishing's usually pretty decent. A lot of panfish, the occasional bass. Watched a guy hauling a crappie, just an absolute slab last year, Gene Weldon, 
And then uh, if you're worried about that it's going to be a real rough in an experience, it shouldn't be. Uh, the Suwannee River Wilderness Trail has screened enclosures. We'll be in those each night uh, with the exception of the last night. We're going to do at least one camping under the stars on the bank or perhaps for those of you that want some little more structure to be able to stay at the Lafayette Blue State Park for the uh, primitive camping area. But I would encourage everybody that goes, it's much more fun to stay in that public land that's along the bank, bring a tent, or if the weather's nice enough, just sleep under the stars next to the fire. It'll be a blast. Hope to see you there. So that Swanee River trip, like a lot of the trips and events we talk about, is a BHA, the Florida Backcountry chapter, uh, Florida chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. It's it's one of their many events that they put on. So if you're sitting here going, man, how do these guys always find out about these events? Then obviously you're not a member. So you get up and that, that stuff's going to come in your email. You can get the updates on the Florida chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Facebook page. That stuff is always popping up there all over the state of Florida. So in this podcast podcast description, you'll be able to scroll down to the bottom and find a link to the Facebook page for the Florida chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and as well a link to join Backcountry Hunters and Anglers if you're not a member. It's 35 bucks. So, I mean, I can think of a lot of things I've spent 35 bucks on and got absolutely nothing for it. Absolutely. And that Swanee River trip, if you're not entirely sure you want to check it out, or if you want to meet a couple of guys from uh, the Under Pressure Outdoors podcast, we'll be on the trip. Come on down, check out BHA, get a feeling for it, and uh, hopefully you'll get involved in helping to keep public land in public hands. Thanks again. Kevin, I really appreciate you joining us this week. and got a pretty good episode out of that. It's very informative. You bet. I enjoyed it. Thanks for the invite. All right. You guys have a great week.